G'day and welcome to Radio Notes, where those in music talk life and those in life chat music and more. I'm John Murch, the producer and host. Today's guest exemplifies for me what the fringe is all about, particularly that of the Adelaide Fringe, the biggest fringe in the Southern Hemisphere. In fact, I am very honoured to be in their presence today for this chat and somewhat embarrassed by the audio recording that came from the day. I was just so excited to catch up with them that even someone of my expertise was just not watching the levels, not watching the tickling of the reds. So apologies for that. That said, I hope you still enjoy this extended full chat with our guest today. Shane Adamzak is a founding member of Weeping Spoons, an independent theatre company whose most popular character is Zach Adams, though they've also starred alongside Greg Fleet in This Is Not A Love Song, as well as his own award-winning plays Trampoline and The Ballad of Frank Allen. Early 2020, Shane joined us for a chat in the Adelaide Botanic Gardens. Shane, welcome back to Adelaide, South Australia. Thank you. It's good to be back after having a year off. It's been two years since I've been here. When was the first Adelaide Fringe, if you can remember? Like, that I ever did? Yeah. 2002. And I know that because I just walked past a bunch of the old posters that they've got up at the moment for the 60th anniversary. Yes. And so I've I've been looking at all the posters going, yeah, I was at that one, that one, that. I have done a lot of Adelaide Fringes. So I've been doing it for 18 years now. You're a teenager of it now. Yeah, definitely. That's weird. You are the fringe of the fringe. When people want to go and see real fringe acts of the fringe, if they don't want to go and see their mainstream comedians Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. Will Anderson, Dave Hughes, those kind of things, they want to go and see some theatre, they want to actually be challenged, they want some music, they come and see your good self and people at the Tuxedo Cat and this time around at the Rhino Room. Yeah, Yeah, I like to think so. I still consider myself to be quite young, especially in terms of the world of the fringe, right? 60 years it's been going. But even in the time that I've been doing it, since 2002, it's changed so much, especially in the the last 10 years. And as someone that tours the Canadian circuit, which is like this whole different world where tickets are all the same prices, there's no big acts, there's no little acts, everyone has the same time slots, the same, you know, fairness of it. Like, it's an even playing field. Here there's like the big circus show that costs 80 bucks. There's the people from TV and then there's the weird installation acts and then there's there's such a weird variety of things there's like a bit of a hierarchy to it mm. now and with places like the garden especially and gluttony to you know a, a bit of an effect as well like it's become very commercial some of it like it's all about selling beer and selling product and glitz and glamour and the fringe is you know it's supposed to be about being on the edge of all of that going down a side alley and uh, going into an old warehouse that's a bit rickety yeah. and seeing in the audience three people and then a woman called Hannah Gatsby be on stage yeah exactly that kind of thing mm-hmm. let's talk about the difference between here and other festivals that you do you were talking about there the the equality of other fringes across the world even though some of the, the fringes in Canada are still really big there's still that that real sense of community and people they'll take two weeks off from work just to go see fringe shows all day your tickets get capped to like 10 bucks or something like that so you can't see anything that's more than 12 bucks maybe at a max mm. so you can go see like five shows a day for 50 bucks whereas here you could see maybe two shows for 50 bucks 
Some people don't even do that. Um, whereas people, like, they're really into it. And there's a real sense of community with the people, a real sense of community with the artists. There is that here as well, but it's sort of just spread into little cliques a little bit more. You know, there's, like, your gluttony gang, the garden gang. There's people in their little independent venues, which there seems to be, you know, less and less of. And there's the circus people. There's the stand-up people. There's the theatre people, visual arts and whatever. Canadian circuit's mostly theatre, which I'm all about. It's like it's weird for someone to be doing a stand-up show there. Like last year, Colin Mockery came and did an improv show. And they're like, it's great. I love Colin Mockery. He's really, really good. But it was, everyone was just like, what the hell is, what is he doing here? Like he doesn't need to be doing a fringe show. Whereas here, everyone from TV is doing a, a fringe show. Is it the case then like things like Montreal Comedy Festival becomes the mecca of the comedy section of it? Yeah. Like the Melbourne International Comedy Festival is that as well. So and a lot of comedians are here getting their shows ready for, for Melbourne, which um, I understand. But yeah, even seeing that comedy, you know, the space in the program grow and grow and grow over the years and that theatre section gets smaller and smaller and smaller. It's been a, been a real eye-opening experience. And now I realise why I tour Canada every year. And I still, I mean, I'm still here. Like, I still love this festival. But for me now, it's more about this is the time of year I get to catch up with the people from Adelaide that I love and the people, you know, from the fringe scene that I only get to see this time every year. Now, you're based in Perth these days? Still based in Perth, yeah. Which means you do have an eye to cast across the rest of the country from afar. Which oh, yeah. It has its advantages and disadvantages. Like, I, I love being based in Perth, and the, the main reason that I'm still there is because of my family. I'm very close with my family. And I, my trade-off when I moved back, because I was living in Montreal, when I moved back to Perth was like, I'll live here, but as long as I can tour three to six months of the year, I won't go insane. Because I love Perth as a city, and the art scene and the comedy scene are pretty good, but it's, it's very, it can get a little bit insular at times and get a little bit incestuous. And there's like a lot of people who do a lot of really good stuff in Perth, but then just don't take it anywhere. And I, I've never understood that, like why you would spend, you know, six months developing a theatre show, perform it for three weeks in Perth, and then just never do it again. Like Weeping Spoon, my company, like our whole thing has always been like, create a show, take it on the road, for as many places as you can, you know, feasibly take it to. And then when that's sort of done its course, do it all again with a new show. We'll talk about new shows for Weeping Spoon a little later. I want to focus on the 10-year anniversary for Zach Adams' Love Songs for the Future Girl, which is what you've brought to Adelaide, South yeah, Australia. Yeah, brought, brought one of the old dogs out of the kennel this Why year. Why was that? Well, the main reason I brought it back is because last year I was touring Ballad of Frank Allen, uh, my show about a man who lives inside another man's beard, touring that uh, across Canada to cities that hadn't had it yet. A few cities still on my tour that I didn't have a show booked in. So I thought, well, I'll bring back the old one. It's the 10 year anniversary. It's a fun show. I'll revamp it. It's a new version of the show. Like the first half is roughly the same. The second half is mostly new material. And it was just, it's always been a fun show. It's an easy show to tour because it's just me and a guitar. I was just keen to revisit Zach Adams because Zach Adams, my sort of solo comedy character, got put on hiatus in 2012 to focus on theatre stuff. I wanted to make more ensemble shows and I did that. I wrote a show called Trampoline, I wrote Ballad, I wrote a solo show called Stasis and um, I sort of did what I wanted to do with that little pocket of time and I thought, well, I'll just bring Zach back just for one little last hurrah. How crucial is performing music in your own well-being as a performer? Oh, uh, it's huge. Like, I, pretty much every show I've done has had music in it apart from the last one because, you know... There's that thing like all comedians want to be rock stars or rock stars want to be comedians and I want to be both, you know, in a way. I want to be an actor that's a rock star and a comedian. So the Zach Adams project was always kind of like a way to sort of live out that sort of 
Ziggy Stardust-esque fantasy of getting to play music and ballad had music in it, trampoline had music in it. It's always been a big part of my life. I used to play in bands and I like, I really miss that. And I like, I, I dream still of, of getting a band back together at some point. So yeah, music, like I always like to have it around so if I can incorporate it into my work, even if it's just through soundtrack or live music or whatever that be. The songs of Zach Adams, Zach Adams' repertoire, I guess, yeah. of tunes is very specific to a particular age and time in your life. Yeah, like I think the songs of this show are very reflective of me in my 20s, which is why it's a little bit weird to be performing this show retrospectively. Like it's almost like me within the show looking back at the show itself, mm. if that makes any sense. Like I even look back and going, you know, like I wrote this show 10 years ago and I think I finally figured out what it's about after all these years. Because at the time it was just a show with a bunch of funny songs and a couple of covers that I liked. And now it's really it was a show about me and, and Zach sort of shaping our our adulthood really like through the people that we'd met and the people in our lives that sort of through the mistakes we'd made shaped the person that we are today because the show's now all about you know being the best version of you can be of you that you can be or at least you know being a better version of the person that you were before is the line in the show looking inward outward whatever that is that you've mm. been doing how much as a performer do you need your own character um yeah quite a lot i mean like people define me a lot especially when I'm in Adelaide or if I'm doing Melbourne County Festival as a comedian, I've never really considered myself a comedian. I'm an actor through and through. Like, I've got a theatre background. The Zach thing is the closest thing I've ever had to being, like, a quote-unquote stand-up. Mm. And even Love Songs for Future Girl, it's more of a musical comedy sort of cabaret show. More than It's a storytelling show with jokes in it. But, yeah, having that sort of that mask, as it were, on stage, or whether that be the guitar when I'm Zach Adams or some various costumes when I'm in like the ballad of Frank Allen being able to separate yourself from the audience because I was always like I'm one of those actors that you know has a story that I was always quite a very shy kid and through drama was able to find a, a way to kind of relate to people and express myself to people through characters and acting and jokes and humor and um yeah I think it's a it's a huge part of it like I don't think I would ever do stand-up just as myself I think that would be weird like I find that scary even though I technically do stand up all the time so Shane Adamzak who is the writer of the material yeah where are you finding your character inspirations now? And we'll talk about newer work later, but just generally, when, you, when you're looking at the writing that's currently on the table... It differs a lot. Like, starting with Zach. Like, Zach's always sort of been treated as, like, a parallel universe version of myself. Like, a, a version of myself I could have been had I chosen different, different things. He's like the rock star that I, I could have been in another life kind of thing. With Ballad of Frank Allen, that just started as a short story series that I, I was writing for a website when I was living in Canada that I just sort of fell in love with the characters and fell in love with the story and wanted to translate it to the stage. Trampoline was my sort of attempt at writing an alternative rom-com. I was just like, can I write a rom-com that's not too mainstream, that sort of still has my core values in it, but, you know, would appeal to a wider audience? And that was sort of, I guess it all sprung from different challenges to myself, I guess, as a writer as well as a performer. By the work that you've done, I've seen over the years you've become a stronger and more appearingly secure person uh, in terms of your outlook on the world. Is yeah. that the case and has writing and particularly performing been a direct result of that? I think it has been, that it's given you an outlet to be yourself. But yeah. What's your take on that? I haven't really thought about it like that, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's a pretty good point. Like, I think, like, my writing... And performing is definitely like matured over time as I have. And like you look back at some of the jokes in Love Songs for Future Girl and it's like it's, it's not the kind of stuff I would write now. 
like you know it's, it's I look back and I think it's oh that's that's a crass joke or oh, that's such an immature cheap laugh but it fits within the world of of the show so it's there yeah I think as the world has changed and I've grown up I pay more attention to the things that are happening outside I mean the world's crazy right now <laughs> like it's like this there's people that are like destroying supermarkets for toilet paper I'm like people are insane out there and I'm you're just trying to maintain your sense of self amongst that and holding on to the values that you've always had whereas still being open to learning new things I think is very important I think it's also about the flip side because here in South Australia the IGAs are completely full of toilet paper and we've got no issue the eastern states seem to be going cray cray about it yeah WA everyone's lost their yeah. minds here in Adelaide we're fine yeah I'm, I'm taking all the toilet paper back mum and dad just so you know I'm going to get some bring some back I'm going to take care of you guys uh, also Melbourne's only just discovered deposit legislation that we've had here in Adelaide since 1974 for as long as I can remember 74 yeah, yeah. I think Perth's looking at getting it as well, actually, which is which is exciting. Let's talk about the new show. Okay. So, firstly, I mean, it's still it's still very much a baby. It's a baby idea. Like, it's not even worth ultrasounding yet. I know who I want to cast in it. Ideally, it's going to be another two-man show. Myself and a guy called Dan Buckle, who's a very good performer from Western Australia. Now, the reason I want to do it with him is we work together quite a lot, and he's younger than me. He's about he's uh, maybe ten years younger than me, thereabouts. He gets we get mistaken for each other a lot. Which is great. I love the guy. Is that going to help with the story? Very much so. It's a show that's going to be looking at the idea of sort of like twins and doppelgangers and alternative timelines and time travel. It's going to be a bit of a, a, a sort of a, a absurdist time travel black comedy, I think is the plan, where we're going to play the same character and then also different versions of the same. We're going to be playing lots of versions of a guy called James. Tent I'll, I'll, t I'll say it's tentatively titled James Again, the play. And um, yeah, because we get, we get mistaken for each other a lot. He was in a show last year that was um, quite similar in tone to a play I wrote called Trampoline. After I went and saw the show, a lot, quite a lot of people told me like, oh, that was a lot like your play. And oh, Dan Buckle, he's like the new Shane Adams act. And I'm like, you know, that's not a compliment to say to me, right? That's like saying I'm washed up. That's like saying, I'm like, well, who am I then? It was meant with pure intentions. So yeah, I thought, well, f*** it. I'm, I'm going to just... I'm gonna I'm gonna work with Dan then. Dan and I are gonna work together, and we're gonna um, we're gonna create uh, something where maybe we will be the exact same person. So where have some of these um, kernel of the ideas? Scrapbooks full of them, which maybe I'll come to. I've got so many half-written plays that I just lost heart in halfway through. Are they still in the books though? They're still in the moleskins or whatever's? Yeah, they're still they're still floating around, still on my laptop, half-written ideas and sketches and. My phone is just filled. Like, if anyone went through the notes section in my phone, you would think it was like the insane ramblings of a madman because it's just nonsensical unless you have context. Even sometimes I look back and go, hmm, borderline grass trap. No, no idea. No idea what that is. But are there some times where an idea does come back to bite you at like three in the morning and you just have to go through the notes? That's, that's actually when I know I'm onto something good, if I'm honest. When I can't sleep until... I've written something down or if I've got a spark of an idea and I'm like if I don't get that on paper or write that down on my laptop I, I could lose that that that's when I know I'm onto something and I'm, I'm getting excited when I can't sleep until all the ideas of the day are out of my head I'm like okay well this must be something I actually care about well that's what I was thinking in terms of cross-referencing as well by going back into the archives and going I once upon a time spoke about Vegemite as a tanning solution yeah. and you can go and find that yeah and then add it to whatever the new creativity is yeah and there's been bit from plays that have have made it from one show to another over the years like little characters and, and lines of dialogue and bits and pieces that have been recycled from from half-dead ideas and so, it's good to be able to bring bring those babies back 
So are you confident, even though it is a peanut, that James again will be the 2021 show? At this stage, yeah. But I've, I've been here before. But at the moment, and it always happens when I'm doing Fringe Festivals because you see so many other shows and you get inspired and you're like, oh, yes, that. this I love what they've done here. I love this kind of like attitude they've taken towards this or I like this kind of character. And you like you pick and choose little bits that kind of just spark your imagination. That seems to be what, what's happened this year. So, yeah, I'm exci- it's, a, it's the most excited I've been about a new project in about three years. So. Is that also a vibe that there is no new idea? There's always just reinvention? Oh, absolutely. Everything's been done already. you just got to find your own way to tell the story, you know. I always say that mainstream musicals are like top 40. Got fringe theatre, that's kind of like the punk rock, and then like Shakespeare, they're like cover bands of the theatre world. It's just all been done before. You bring to bed, though, Zach Adams, after what's been a whole decade. Yeah, well, a decade of this show. Zach Adams has been around since 2005. Yeah, so 15 years of, of and Zach the, Adams. the show yeah. is Love Songs for Future Girl. Yeah. I'm going to do my final performance of it here in Adelaide for the Fringe. And then after that, I, I don't think I'll ever perform it live again. Unless, you know, I say that, but unless someone's like, hey, I'll give you $1,000. I mean, I'll take $1,000 to do this show. It'll take me an hour to get it ready. Ideally, I think I'll never do it again. It's getting released as a special because that's how you do things now. So I recorded it earlier this year in Perth to a hometown crowd. And it was like a really good show. I've got to edit it all together. And um, my friend Thomas Ford who's an, another amazing fringe artist from Perth, he has a, they did the big crowd, crowdfunding campaign to release a streaming service for, for weirdos. Netflix for weirdos is what this has been called. It's called A Normal Place. And it's, it's starting this year. Yeah, it's going to be released on that along with a, a documentary about bringing Zach back and touring it across Canada and like a bunch of little like special like sort of Zach webisodes of just behind the scenes weird stuff. So yeah, I'm going to, going to put it out there, put the Zachumentary out. That'll maybe be it for that show. Is it going to relate well on screen, I should ask? It is always hard to translate live show, but because it's this is sort of, like I said, the closest thing I do to like a stand-up show. I mean, the audio in the visual is good. I, I filmed it with a whole bunch of cameras, so I'm going to edit it all nice. There's all different angles and stuff. Maybe chop in a few little bits of documentary stuff in the actual show itself just to make it, you know, break it up a little bit. And it's not a particularly long show. I think it'll, I think it'll work. We filmed it in Lazy Susan's, which is, which is my venue, which is a beautiful, beautiful space. Now, that's where you're currently running comedy shows. Is that correct? I am, yeah. So I took over last year, I took over running the Tuesdays and Friday night comedy shows shows there which has been um, a real labor of love a lot more work than I thought it was going to be but it's been very rewarding to sort of sort of turn the place around from where it was it wasn't like in a terrible place but there was this like I hadn't done stand-up for years and I came to do a one-off gig when I started rehearsing the Zach stuff again right and I showed up and there's just like only male comedians on there's a lot of like real dick swingy like swaggery attitude backstage and I was just like oh this is horrible oh this is that toxic masculinity everyone's been talking about and the female comedians were just not happy to be there they just they didn't want to be involved in the room and it kind of got driven a little bit into this place where I didn't like it so we've been working really hard to sort of bring back you know sort of gender equality in the lineups and just getting more people back in the audience been a lot of work but you know the feedback we've been getting has been like phenomenal so I'm really happy with that just about that rewarding aspect of actually putting in the legwork to have equality it's just one of those things like we would just worked really hard to to create a a safe space for everybody we want the audience to be having a great time we want all the comedians to be having a good time and it, like it doesn't seem like too much to ask you know it's a comedy club people are there to laugh they want to have fun they don't want to have you know people get up and make you know horrible rape jokes or you know just mm. inappropriate stuff so we have a new code of conduct at the venue which isn't really that strenuous like it's basically just a piece of paper that says like just don't be a dickhead 
and everything will be fine. And some people struggle with that, unfortunately. And I'm so keen, like anyone, basically anyone that comes in and does anything other than straight stand up, whether that be like character stuff or improv or sketch, I'm just like eating it up because I just love it. Anything that's just out of the norm. You're lucky enough you're at the Rhino Room this time around, which is, you know, a particular oh, it's great. I'm kind it. of comedy and, and yeah. how it rolls and everything else, although it does do more than that. Mm-hmm. How do you nurture that shame? How do you nurture that kind of experimental theatre broadness from, from the comedy world as a producer? Yeah, it's hard because you can go to a comedy night and you can see eight guys get up and they could may as well just be the same guy just doing <laughs> eight different sets whereas you know someone that's doing sketch it's going to be different every time and it just it just mixes the night up tonally you're watching like just the entire extended edition of lord of the rings from beginning to the end but halfway through you watch the breakfast club just to mix it up so your brain doesn't explode from all them hobbitses that's not the best analogy i've ever come up with but i'm sticking with it john a thing that TV Black Boxes, Rob McKnight, who um, is part of that show, is big on. Um, and Simon Taylor, I thought, was getting there on Channel 10, but I don't know where it's at. So I'll just ask for your ideas on this. That late night variety show that I keep on talking about that has variety, has sketch, has music mm. and everything else on mainstream TV. Can it happen? Do we have the resources in Australia? Uh, I'd love it to happen. And so many have tried. I mean, my, the last one that I really remember that I really, really loved was probably the McAuliffe program Mm. on Channel 2. And I know there's been many others. I mean, John Conway tonight was, you know, had its moments while that lasted. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a few kicking around. I think, I mean, there's definitely the talent. There's definitely the people. It's just about getting the right people together. With those shows, I mean, people will be keen to be on it as well. Like, I would love to guest on shows like that. And there are people that are keen that are always writing and they just, they need that platform to put their stuff out there. Because there's live stuff in every city, but there's no, like... I mean, like, even, like, uh, last year when Recovery was... They did that special about Recovery, which was such, such an amazing show, like, that shaped so many people's minds. Like, I learned, like, so many of my still favourite bands I discovered on Recovery, you know, hung over on a, on a Saturday morning. Mm. And, um, yeah, just even shows like that, just with the variety, the live music. Someone has to be able to make it work. Jane and uh, Dylan are now doing a YouTube series, of course, from their van, interviewing bands and, oh, and, and live yeah. music. So they're still doing their thing, but it's on such a smaller scale now. Yeah. It's not on a Saturday morning and it does involve being hungover for those that wish to be. Shane Adamsack is our very special guest on Radio Notes. We talk to people in life about music and those in music about life. Shane does music, so we're talking about life, but he also does life, so we'll be talking about music. But... (laughs) So smooth. I am confused, and you can answer this for me. I'll try. Not why did the master blow up Gallifrey. I, 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 (laughs) I was hoping we'd talk who. The thing that no one's been able to answer is this for me. I remember, and I know that John Hurt has passed. Yeah. And he was the the war doctor who didn't want to be a doctor and all that kind of stuff. I get that. There is a picture of Gallifrey blown up when he regenerates into one of the doctors. Mm -hmm. How does that scene relate to the current scenes that we're seeing in Gallifrey? Yeah, everything that has happened in the season 12 finale has kind of, it's changed everything like it, it this is huge right let's, like it or not but let, like a lot has happened because of this the episode. thing that's sticking in my head is yeah. obviously the the old guy yeah i'm not sure if his name is cassius or what it was but he looks like the john hurt character mm. but of course john hurt's not alpha or maybe he's the old war doctor and he knows where the portal is that shows up gallifrey yeah like that picture was in that museum yeah that's the bit that's sticking in my head firstly can you answer that i no, I think Chibnall has a lot. I think he's 
given us an, an amazing cliffhanger that I hope he has answers for and he's got time to write them now, I guess. Because, yeah, it's changed a lot. The fact that the War Doctor whole sort of saga ended with them not, like, undestroying Gallifrey and then after all that, the Master just went and just did it anyway. Just did it anyway. So all that story arc, all that 50th anniversary special essentially was for nothing. Trapping Gallifrey in a pocket dimension and then he just found it and destroyed it. And I'm like, all right, maybe it'll get undone, maybe it won't. We just don't know. It's like basically they just undid a lot of stuff that we've worked that they worked really hard to make happen. Is the Doctor currently where the Dugons are in the pocket galaxy? Um, where did that episode? Yeah, so they they ended up on. I, I just watched it the other day. Yeah, I think they're still on Gallifrey when they left, right? Yeah. And then she got shot by the Dugons into oh, somewhere. Oh yeah, that's exactly yeah. That's into what a prison. Then. Is that prison the pocket? No. No, that's I. I think that's just a floating prison in space. Right. Oh, boy. So the Daleks have to rescue her. Maybe. Someone has to, or it's going to be a really boring season <laughs> with just Yaz running around going, hello, and nothing happening. And Graham getting a bit of bit of nookie or something. Yeah, maybe. That'd be good. He's due for some. I think so. You know. Yeah, he's leaving. He is the one who's going to die. He's, hey, well, he's leaving the show, not necessarily dying, but yeah, him and um, Brian. So just Yaz is going to be left apparently, after the Christmas special. Don't shoot the messenger. This is just what I heard. Hmm. So how did you find the Jodie Whittaker era? Oh, look, I, I enjoyed her first season up and down. Like, I thought, you know, had some great episodes, had some pretty ordinary episodes. I felt the same with season 12, but season 12 definitely had more episodes that I enjoyed than I didn't like. I felt there was a few, like, save the earth messages that felt really sort of ham-fisted down everyone's throats. We're like, yeah, all right, we get it. And it's a good message, but uh, it just feels so forced. But yeah, I thought like finally there was sort of a little bit of a more overarching storyline over the season where the, uh, I'm not a huge fan of the Monster of the Week episodes. Mm. I like it when there's sort of something bigger happening overall and we got a little taste of that. And hopefully they'll do more of that in the future. Shane, anything else we should say about Doctor Who? I think I'll let you save that for your podcast. Look, yeah, look, if you haven't done any of the Jodie Whittaker episodes, give, give it a chance. There's some, real, there's some real gold in there. There's a bit of bronze as well, but it's, it's worth sticking it through, I think. Too many companions though? Look, yeah, I, I kind of like the one companion thing personally, but I don't mind the current trio. I don't mind. They did grow on me. They've all slowly sort of proved, proved their worth over the time. When were you first introduced to sci-fi? When did Shane get the sci-fi bug? Ooh, that is a good question. I mean, I'm, I mean, remember like watching like Star Wars and sort of old, sort of like the big ones as a kid. Um, but... You could have walked away from it, right? I could have. I think, you know, actually, you know what I think it is? I think it's probably Red Dwarf. When I was in probably grade eight or nine, my uncle introduced me to Red Dwarf. Um, actually, no, I would have been younger than that, now that I think of it. Yeah, probably grade eight. Yeah, probably grade eight. And basically, he was like, you've got to check out this show. And I jumped in, I think it was when about season five was starting of Red Dwarf. And I was just like... This is like, it's sci-fi, it's in space, but it's also really funny and it's really weird. And every episode has like this weird, different sci-fi trope to it. And I think that was probably the show that made me fall in love with, with sci-fi. Did you ever jump over to Das Kapital at all? No. Right. No, I've seen little little bits and pieces of it way back when. Mm. But, I mean, in terms of like sci-fi and funny, yeah, Red Dwarf was... Red Dwarf was the place? That Red Dwarf was, yeah, was my, my gateway drug. How does sci-fi sit with you now, decades later? 
Well, I mean, uh, I don't know if you know this, but I do a show, an improv show called Captain Spaceship, which, oh. which I just did. Uh, we just did our second, like, full season. Now, this is with some Perth. very impressive artwork as well. So let's yes. talk about this. This yeah. is your sci-fi show. So this is my improv. It's like an improv right? serial comedy sci-fi show. So basically, we do a season. Uh, this year, we did... I think it was 14 episodes. So it was all just one long storyline over 14 nights. It was all canon and everything that happens. If a main character dies, they're not in it the next night. Um, and we bring in new people and we got some amazing artwork done. And it's like, basically we have a core cast, which are the crew of the ship, which is a cast of five. Very, very talented people, mostly from the big hoo-ha improv troupe in Perth, which has been going for 18 years. And then we have a different guest or two each night to come in and play a villain or some kind of whatever they want basically and then the the thing is about improv and sci-fi with this sort of marriage is that sci-fi you can do anything you want because you can just go oh we're in a different dimension now oh, i built a machine that does whatever and it just makes sense because it's sci-fi and it's improv so you have so much freedom to be like oh now this episode we're in jane austen world or whatever or now this episode's a western but we're still the same characters but oh, we're on a planet that's a western you can just do whatever you want just when you get the right combination of people and the right audience, we really tapped into the sort of the Perth, uh, Perth nerd community this year. And we had such a great season with so many people coming back to see episode after episode after episode, like really caring about what happened in the storyline. And like, it puts that pressure on you to make it good. Cause you're like, people are like invested in this. This isn't just like a, a throwaway one episode thing. This is like a storyline that people are like, I really want to make sure that the character that I'm rooting for makes it to the end. And as a, uh, yeah, it's a hell of a lot of fun. It's a fun medium. And like I said, like when you get the right, right group of people, you can really make something, something magical. Not something that you would tour so much, more of a home ground thing. Uh, yeah. Although we had so much fun doing it where we're thinking about bringing it here next year with um, just bringing the core cast and having guests from the festival come be in the show. Yeah, because it's such... And we had this amazing artwork done by a, a Canadian artist named Ben Steamroller. Look him up on all the all the things if you're looking for someone to make some amazing comic artwork for you. He's really, really good. Apart from yours, what else does Ben do? Um, he's done artwork for many theatre shows. Uh, there's a great troupe called Sex T-Rex, which are based out of Toronto. They do sketch and, like, they do amazing. They also do, like, sci-fi. They do a monthly live uh, improv D&D show, which I'm a huge fan of. So he's done artwork for that. Yeah, he just does really good comic book and poster art for people. There's a link in our show notes. It'll be right there for you to check out amazing. Ben's work. It's so efficient. Yeah. Yeah. It's already there. <laughs> it's already happening. Wow. Just how I roll. Wow, wow, wow. You, you get that 24 die and it's happening. How is your chest going? Chess, I don't, I don't particularly play. You don't? I, for some reason, I was thinking about chess the other day, thinking, like, I should play chess more. I'm not good at it at all. There's just something cool about playing chess. I think it's from those X-Men movies that I keep watching, seeing Charles Xavier and Magneto play chess. I'm like, ah, that's so cool. I'm going to be a cool old guy playing chess in a park. You're embracing your more mature year there, hey? Yeah, I think so. I'm getting ready for it. I want to, like, I've always, like, had the ambition to be, like, a really cool old guy. Because I had this uncle, uh, my uncle Mimish, my great, so he's my mum's uncle, my great uncle, who, like, I, my, both my grandfathers uh, passed away when I was quite young. So he was always sort of, like, my grandfather figure. And he was just, like, the coolest, like, wackiest, loveliest guy. I'm like, I'm going to be that. That's my end game, man. He lived for quite a while, and he was, like, just a cool dude to the end. I want to be a cool old guy. Did he play chess or drafts? tinkered he built things like he had a workshop he would build like you know like little boats in bottles and he would just build stuff in his workshop he was a tinkerer yeah do you think about him when you're doing set design and things like that yeah Does sometimes because I, I i inherited some of his tools which i don't use they're sort of just more ornamental but i look at them and i, I think of him of him fondly i have this amazing like hammer that unscrews and it's like a it's sort of like a swiss army knife but it's just filled with different size screwdrivers inside a hammer right it's brilliant 
Play it's somewhere. like a, a very primitive sonic screwdriver, but mm. it's a hammer. <laughs> What's your favorite geek game that you're playing at the moment? Because I'm sure it's not Ooh. D&D. I'm sure there's other games that you're playing. Like like physical game or I'm, be, I'm getting back into video games at the moment, which because uh, I, I work at a children's hospital, which I don't really talk about much, but I, uh, I play a lot of video games there, a lot of Mario Kart. So that's Kart. the day job? That's the day job. So I've been getting a little bit back into video games. I've been playing <laughs> my guilty pleasure at the moment, and I, and I do not believe in guilty pleasures, really, but I define it as that, is I've been playing Stardew Valley. It's a farming game. You inherit your granddad's farm and you just farm. You just farm and farm and you've got to get the villagers to become friends with you. There's a villager named uh, Penny who I've currently made fall in love with me in the game. I didn't make her. She wanted to because I'm great. She's in the game. She's not a real person. Right. And it's, it's very much a, like when I need to zone out. It's like I consider it my meditation time. I just play Stardew Valley. I just chill out and I farm and I work on my farm, I make friends with villagers, I go out and I, I mine in the caves. It's great. So that's what I'm playing at the moment. And what are the kids yeah. playing? Kids are, oh, it's, it's all, it's all, actually, I mean, Mario Kart's always a winner. There'll never be a day where someone's not playing Mario Kart, Minecraft, Fortnite. Yeah. Um, there's a bunch, all the, anything, anything on the Switch has been very popular with the kids of late. You recently yeah. got a Switch? I got one, yeah. I got for, one for Christmas year before last, yeah. What do you think the future of theatre will be for those kids? Oh, man. This is something I think about a lot because I look at a lot of the shows that do very well during Fringe and there's a lot of stuff about... Um, it seems to be a lot about sort of like gender identity, sexual politics. It's all very much leaning towards that, which, you know, it's, is, is great. It's, you know, people, everyone's going to make the shows that they want to make. It's not really anywhere I'm particularly leaning. Like, I, I don't imagine I'm going to make a, a, a show about particularly focused on sex or gender equality because it's, it's not... You know, I'm just a straight white man. It's not really my story to tell. Mm. You know, in a way, I've already made that show. It was called Love Songs for Future Girl, and it is what it is. I don't know. There's like a lot of more embracing of technology. I'm still very much a like uh, a bare bones theatre maker. I like to make something that's very easy to tour, something that can fit in a suitcase, something that can work under fluoro lights that doesn't need a lot of tech. Some people are very much the opposite way. They're very focused on tech, and you know, if there's a there's a power outage, their show just won't work. I want to know that I can go into a space with whatever show I've got and even like absolute bare bones just in a room under fluoro lights, we could still do this show if we had to because it's based on, you know, content and dialogue and, and acting and performance. That's just my personal preference. But, you know, everyone's got their own own angles. Are those kids going to go to theatre or are they going to be on farms within their devices? Oh, man. I don't know. Like I've seen, I've worked on some children's theatre shows in the last couple of years. And there's some really good stuff and kids still really enjoy it. But I, it surprises me how many kids, like during Q&A sessions after the show, will refer to the play as like in the movie or in the TV. Like they refer to it like they don't understand that it's a, a different thing, like how different, different live theatre is. And they get intimidated by the fact that the person from the show is talking to them directly oh. after the show. It's, that, that worries me. It, yeah, it's a little bit scary. but Because it, even adults these days aren't doing what we're doing now as much. And a lot of it is is on the parents to ensure that they're not just plonking their kids in front of Netflix. I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a kid of the 80s. I grew up watching TV and that's, you know, a huge part of my upbringing for sure. But my mum still took me to so many live theatre shows and concerts and, and music gigs. And that still needs to be such a big, important part of kids' lives, I think. When I had a chat with the, the Brian Moore couple, they're married, about theatre, particularly children's theatre, one of the things they were talking about getting the children's engagement away from well not just away from the screen but their engagement of anything now is programmed in such a way so if you do say on the screen there's only one outcome to it where yeah. improvised theater for example something you'd be 
well known to as well yeah has many different the the massaging and imagination is not as free on the screen as oh, it is absolutely. in live theater. we do a show in perth we have a troupe called the big hoo-ha like i said we do a, a show called the little hoo-ha which is our show for kids and as soon as the kids realize that they don't have to just sit there quietly and they can put their hand up and they can say something and whatever they say we're going to put in the show they lose their minds because that interactivity is so important and the fact that they can just we allow them to be you know what I would define as a little bit naughty they can yell stuff out you know they can make stupid suggestions you know the parents aren't censoring them and they get to have that interaction with the cast and then the cast brings whatever they want to life in front of their eyes um, I think that's a real eye opener for a lot of kids and they, they love that show they eat it up and it, it's a fun show for us as well because it's very similar to our adult show but obviously you have to make that little switch in your brain you be like okay G-rated content only no swearing you know no innuendo all that kind of stuff this sort of comes more from their chat that where the parents would previously say no to an idea you're very much saying yes to an idea and actually embracing the stupid yeah however silly however rude however crass if it's what they want that's what we give them you know unless you know it's something ridiculously inappropriate but yeah. you know but their imagination if they want to think there's a purple elephant there is a purple elephant yeah and if you know like we we did a little a little thing with captain spaceship where we did a little mini show for kids and it's not my sense of humor but i ended up being a villain that had an army of kids who had to defeat the space pirates with farts hi i'm bridget bardini my brand new single aphrodite is out now i'm coming up on radio notes shane amazon a very special guest the Julia Zamiro rock quiz question I ask everyone. Your first album. Ooh, first full album. That you bought with your own money. That I bought with my own money was the Presidents of the United States of America's first album. With Lump on it? With Lump, Peaches. I think Kitty was on that album. It was a great album. I still love that album. I still have that album. What drew you to buy that record? Because um, the, they were a fun band. And they, were, they didn't take it too seriously. And I was like, oh, these guys are funny. It's music and it's funny. And then the next one I got was uh, Oasis's What's the Story, Morning Glory. Like probably very soon after. How did you buy it? Were you walking past a record store? Were you in a record store? Did you purposely go out and buy it? Was that the thing you were doing that day? Yes. I think probably what happened is I probably saved up my pocket money. This is in Perth, isn't it? It would have been in Perth, yeah. I probably went to to Brashes, which does not exist anymore, mm. at Whitford City Shopping Centre, would be my guess, based on the year that that came out. Um, this, the exact same retailer where I first bought Regurgitated Unit album, which I was not allowed to buy because I wasn't 18 yet. Um, but yes, and I bought it and I took it home and I played it, I guess, in my parents' CD player because I didn't have my own yet. And it, yeah, blew my... And I listened to that album over and over and over again because my, my my record collection is my, my cd collection is, is huge now but for a while you know it was just one two maybe five records that would just be on high rotation and now i've got many many more to choose from but those first probably 10 cds i bought boy did they get played a lot your first live experience was eskimo joe oh yeah probably yeah, I remember I was in probably grade 9 or 10 and my friend Nathan said, what are you doing this weekend? We're going to some live gigs. And he dragged me along to my first underages gig. And yeah, it was probably back room in the Grosvenor Hotel. I think it was, yeah, it was like Eskimo Joe and maybe like Turnstile or some other amazing Perth band. Someone like that. I feel like Flanders. I feel like Flanders when they were still around, it could have been them. It was good. We got a free like CD sampler at the end of that gig. And that was a cool thing. Yeah. You are someone who actually buys their music where you can. Yeah, man, absolutely. Talk to us about that feeling, that vibe of why you do it. I know why I do it, but why do you do it? Well, for one thing, as an artist that likes to get paid for my work, I like to support 
the people that I like, right? So if there's a band that I like and I don't have the opportunity to go see them live, for example, I got to, you know, I want to support them in some way for giving me the amazing gift of their music. So yeah, I'll buy an album. I don't particularly like buying digital albums because I just like, what if my computer crashes and I just lose it or whatever? Like, oh, I'll buy a CD and I'll digitize it and put it on my, you know, on my MP3 player or whatever. But I, I like having that physical copy. I like flicking through the artwork. I like reading the linear notes and reading the lyrics. And like people have put a lot of work into these things as musical artists so hard for them to make money off music now because people can just just rip it offline or whatever or you know they make so much less from making a digital copy of it and if you can't support that artist live you've got to support them somehow what is it about the gurge that's kept you entertained oh man i love that band so much and like that was one of the first big gigs that i went to was uh at the the belvoir amphitheater in a big tent was regurgitator supported by custard and no no sorry it wasn't it was regurgitator tism <laughs> and the foves oh. yeah and that was like one of the first gigs i went to and where i first ever experienced a mosh pit i just went i am in love with this i think the thing about the gurge is like that unit album especially like they it was just so fun and so diverse and such a weird album i was just like what is this and it was like there's so many swear words on this album what are they talking about and then he went back and got their first album two playing i was like there's even more swear words on this album this is amazing eye-opening do you remember the lineup of those three foves tism and gurge yeah. do you remember what order they went on stage it was it was the foes and then tism and then and then regurgitator yeah okay because the foes uh would have been dogs are the best people kind of era that was that era for them surf city maybe maybe not yeah definitely definitely dogs dogs (laughs) definitely dogs definitely dogs they definitely played that so you saw them then tism comes out now they would have blown your minds it was probably the big silver phallic heads at the time or the red suits it was like it would have been like 96 i reckon 95, 96. Yep. That sounds like silver suits to me. Yeah, maybe. In my mind, it was the black, the, just the black balaclavas, but I really can't remember. Oh, ma- yeah, okay. Maybe it could have been that far ago. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that was glorious. Because that was around Saturday Night Palsy kind of time. Yeah. Yeah. That was... On um, Hey, Hey, It's Saturday, that song was performed. Oh, man. That, I, every now and then I go back and watch that clip and go, how did they get away with this? How did this happen on Hey, Hey, It's Saturday? Check the show notes. So good. It was also the time of uh, Sophie Lee on that particular record as well. And Sophie Lee was pretty big on Channel 9. And yeah. there was so much going on. So you got that experience of tism. Your mind would have been blown. Yeah. And then the Gurge got their go. Yeah, and that was like primo unit era, like silver suits and wigs. That's probably where I'm getting the silver from. Gurge had these silver suits and they wore these wigs. And this was back when Martin was still in the band, when he was still the drummer. And um, yeah, and Quan was like playing like the guitar. And oh man, it was glorious. A glorious show. What was the last live music show that you saw that did the same effect? Last, live, last live gig I went to was not that long ago, actually. It was just after I got back and I went saw the 1975 mm. uh, which is one of my favorite bands over the last couple of years now as we mentioned as we're walking here they have a brand new single I haven't seen or heard you have yes um, in my inbox uh, talk to us about that song we'll put that in the show notes as well yeah so uh, the new song which I forget what it's called happy um, birthday is it happy it's happy birthday or something like I think it's one of the sort of it's the new single of the album and the clip it's all about Matt Healy's sort of life through drug use and rehab and all that kind of stuff and finding that it's about the history of the band basically and there's lots of little nods to past songs and the clips got lots of nods to past clips and past songs it's really amazingly well done and i'm really looking forward to that album because the, the, i think the four singles they've put out so far are so different from each other but still all sound like the same band somehow 
Yeah. What's your favourite revival of a band? And what I mean by that is Ooh. artists who have been of yesteryear that have come back recently. Which one of those kind of acts have, have grabbed you and gone, yeah, actually, you've still got it? Oh, man, that is a good question. I've seen a few. Um, like, I saw... I mean, some of these bands, I don't know if they've ever technically stopped or I just haven't seen them for a long time. Sure. But I, uh, Custard came and played with Gurge actually last year right. in WA and I went and saw them. And like, you just look, look and it's like, this is just a band of a bunch of dads, you know, which they all are now, but they're still great. They're yeah. still an amazing band with amazing songs. And I had a really good time watching them. I mean, I know a lot of people are very excited that My Chemical Romance are, are back. It's not, you know, not really my thing, but everyone's having a good time there. Um, yeah, Custard's the one that springs to mind. I saw Hoodoo Gurus a few years ago. They were really good, but they've never really stopped. Top of your Twitter profile, still Arcade Fire? Are you still a yeah. member of them? I've, I haven't, I, I don't know if I'm ever going to top that, twi- that tweet yet. There's so many members in that band. They're like the modern day Polyphonic Spree. Are the Polyphonic Spree still a band? Do you I know? don't think... I haven't heard of anything from them for a long no. time. Yeah. Okay, now that I've said that, they'll release something new, won't they? Yeah, well, hopefully. They're great. What's your favourite music experience? For me, just generally, it is seeing music live. Okay. And I'm one of those people that like, I never drink when I go to gigs. Because um, I, I just like to be there, just kind of just enjoying it, just in the, in the moment, audibly, and you know, without anything, you know, altering in my body, you know. But there's something beautiful about, you know, dancing around your living room to a, a new album as well, just in the freedom of your own house. Yeah, I don't know. There's just something about, especially when you're with the right group of people or right, right person seeing a, mm. seeing a live show. And when you find someone that's got really a similar music taste, like I, I made a friend like just at the end of 2018 who has really similar music taste and we'd go to a bunch of gigs together now. I'm like, finally have a gig partner again, which is mm. awesome. Now, I introduced you to Washington, didn't I? Megan Washington. Yeah, well, I, I knew her a little bit, but yeah, you um, actually, last time I met you, you hooked me up with a really nice uh, vinyl album, so I do very much yes. appreciate oh, that. Oh, yes. Pride I, of place I, in my uh, I apartment. did, didn't I? Mm-hmm. Oh. I do things like that, and then I forget, and people thank me, and I'm like, yeah, oh, yeah. I saw her originally at Southbound in Western Australia, like when, I think just when the first EP was out, and then seen her a few times doing like just a live jazz gig when it was like yes. non-Washington like just jazz music and then stuff with a full band uh, when I was in Adelaide with some other kids and yeah she's amazing and then she did a gig with the symphony orchestra yep. when she was releasing her most recent album which still hasn't come out Yes, I'm still waiting for it. So, so not not the Insomnia Symphony Orchestra stuff, but no, the, it was the, post that the new so stuff, she was the one that's in the fridge, the one that's in the fridge, and I wish she'd just put it out. I want it so I wanted it for three years. I want that album, Megan. Going if you're out. listening, we want it. We're here and we're waiting. Yeah, please put it out, even just for me. I won't tell anyone. I promise. Yeah, just I know just, you finished it. Yeah, just Dropbox it across. It'll, yeah. it'll be in safe hands. Yeah. Shane will look after it. Yeah. He'll even give you like an advanced review or something like that. I will. Five stars. Boy, reviews suck, don't they? I, I got a review for my friend show here, but I can't read it because yeah, it's, right. it's behind the paywall. I'm like, hi, oh, I can't even like read a review without losing money. I'm going to buy the paper tomorrow and see if it's in there for you. Not. Oh, that would be great, yeah. man. And of course, the other thing about reviews is when they, they send the sports reporter or the science reporter. I've, I've yeah, or the cooking guy. Yeah. That's great. Uh, love that one of the interviews that we will have coming up um, they reviewed a very fringe show which is great yeah the sports writer oh, not not your ideal audience and they use the wrong pronouns we know how people feel yeah. about pronouns these days now. and they said well they at least could have read the, the media release I'm like they probably didn't even see the media release they literally would have been given the tickets yeah go and review this review this yeah <laughs> yeah it's a, it's a tough thing to, uh, to navigate the world is changing and you gotta keep up back to the music who's your favourite artist at the moment 
I'm really excited because the new 1975 album's coming out. Of course. Alex Leahy, I really like. like. I'm just trying to think of the last couple of records that I bought. I bought Julia Jacqueline's last album. That was really good. King Princess's last album. I've been listening to that Halsey album, which uh, quite took me by surprise, if I'm honest. Right. Because I heard a few singles from that. And I was like, yeah, it's fine. I'll give that a chance. It's, it's a pretty solid album. A lot of female artists, I guess, apparently I'm in the mood for. Yeah, I was going to ask, did you get around to, um, and I can tell you about this later if you haven't, Bats is the name of the artist from Melbourne, The Grand Tour. No. Uh, it's based upon, it's called The Grand Tour because it's the tour of the Voyager satellite, the when, you know, the, the satellite that sort of travels yeah, through yeah. space yeah. and has recordings that come back. And it's got samples from NASA that she got <gasps> in the actual cool. recording, timed yeah. as you go and pass the planets. Oh, weird. So as she's going past the quieter planets, yeah. the songs are quieter and louder planets, louder songs. And, you know, there's Ooh, a song that called, sounds cool. Yeah, that, yeah that sounds good. What's your daily routine like these days as a performer? Because you're both a producer, a performer, writer. You've got a lot of those slashes happening. I have so a lot of slashes in my life. Too many slashes. A lot of podcasts are about how people organize their day. So it'd be fair enough for me to ask you, how do you keep on top of schedules? Yeah, that is a good question. It is, it, honestly, it is very different from day to day. I try to have at least two days a week that are specifically designed to be sort of uh, admin paperwork days where I have, I've got a home office now. I turned my spare room into a home office, which has been an incredibly productive thing that I did because now I have a room that when I'm in there you know I put some music on and I'm just in there to work you know there's no Facebook or any of that kind of stuff it's just in there to do admin stuff power through all my stand-up emails that I've got to do all my producing for fringe shows and get all that sort of stuff done then I have other days that are sort of set aside for being creative days and then I've one thing that has been honestly so important and it sounds so obvious but having time set aside to do nothing or to do fun things or to just go outside for a bit has been so important because I'm very bad at that I'm very bad at allowing myself to just do nothing because my brain's always going mm, you could be working on that Canadian fringe stuff or mm, you could be you know answering those emails for the stand-up venue or whatever there's always something to do but allowing to go no for the next two hours I'm going to play video games or I'm going to go to the store I'm going to go see my go visit my nephew or whatever having that time has made such a big difference to how happy I am as a person and just going nope no work for half of Wednesday. It's great. How you actually fit the reward in. And what you're saying is you just find the time for the reward. You've got to f- put it in there. Because otherwise, if you're just working, like what are you working for if you're not having those moments of time for yourself or with other people that are for recreation or for fun? If you're just working all the time, and, that, and that's great. And some people get off on that. And I, you know, to a point do as well like I love always having something to do and tackling tasks and getting things done but at the end of the day if you're working that hard like what are you what are you doing it for if there's no end game of you know actually doing something fun I think self-care is overrated that's just me I just feel like it's just looking after yourself yeah totally and it, it doesn't have to be a complicated thing like some people seem to make it it's just you know trying to eat good food going outside exercising sometimes talking to people you know things that we just used to do anyway just doing those things. Not that we're saying that things were better in the old days. Yes, they were. Oh, back in the days, you just got a, you better, got a bit of wood, you draw a face on it. That was your best friend. Those were the days. Simpler times. Just stick it in the ground. <laughs> You're spending three months plus of the year, I guess, chasing summer? Yeah, I don't like winter. I, that being said, I've done two Canadian winters, which are just brutal. Um, but that was more of a novelty kind of thing. But uh, yeah, I'm uh, touring Australia 
later this year with a production with Barking Gecko called My Robot. I'm doing the community engagement, so I'm doing like workshops where I teach kids to make these little robots that fight. It's going to be really fun. So I get to I get to see all of us. I get to go to Tasmania for the first time this year. Never been to Tassie, so you I get, get to, to go to Mona before it becomes too popular. Yeah, it's going to be great. Which so it's getting there. Yeah, so I'm really I'm looking forward to uh, to hitting the road. The rest of my year is a little bit open right now, which is is scary and refreshing. It's nice to know that I don't have anything to be working on right now, other than the new show, which is going to be great. Which is James again. James again. At least that's what it's called right now. That's the working title. Yeah. I'm confident it's going to go ahead. Mm-hmm. You're not so confident. Look, I never know. Like, I've been passionate about an idea and then, you know, I've applied for funding or I've applied for a season. It's got knocked back. I'm like, oh, okay, well, I just won't do it then. Like, I've had this idea for this play that I've had for a really long time that I think is going to be a really good show when I finally get to make it. But, like, no one like no one is buying the show. So I'm just like, okay, well, it just sits in my brain then until I'm ready to give it to the world. You've worked with the greats like Greg Fleet. Are there mm-hmm. other greats that you want to work with in the coming decade? Oh, man. Yeah. I'd love to work with, um, I'd love to work with Samuel Johnson. I don't know. I just feel like him and I would get along really well. As in the Secret Life of Us yeah. kind of charity. Yeah. I just think he's a cool guy and I love him as a performer. We get Samuel into the, the room. Yeah. What are you pitching to him? Oh, I don't know. That's the problem. It would be like maybe a theater show or something. That's, that's primarily what I, I have. I mean, I've got TV shows up the wazoo in my brain that would come out. We've had one that I've been working on, on for 10 years that I would love to get made. And maybe he's the guy. Maybe he could be in it. Now, is that the late night one or a different one? No, this is a different one. This is a, a show. It's called, uh, it's called Tuck Shop, which I co-wrote with my friend Jane. We wrote like a whole season's worth of scripts and they've just kind of been sitting there and there's been like, you know, years where we bring it back and we get a couple of little bites and then we kind of like get busy with other stuff. It's one of those projects that like, I know when it gets made, it's going to be amazing, but it's just finding the time to be like, we got to push, somehow we got to push this baby into the world. Samuel, maybe you're the guy to make it happen. Hmm. Would you like to play a primary school principal? Because I think you'd be good at it. So Samuel and you mm. and Jane would be the other person involved in the tuck shop? She would be in the show, yeah. So basically the, the premise of the show is that we are two people that are too grown up to be working in a primary school tuck shop, but our lives have just led us to those points for various reasons. And uh, we're playing various versions of our, our own selves within this crazy world of the tuck shop where the children pick on us, the staff are all insane, and it's just like a crazy adventure of us trying to grow up, but working in a primary school tuck shop. Do you ever get a sense you'll lose your, your sense of childhood? I hope not. I mean, I'm definitely getting older physically, but my mind is still very young. I talk about this in the show that I think it's a real shame. Like, as we grow older, we kind of lose the sense of play and mm. the ability to find the joy in the simplicity that kids have. Like, my best example is, you know, when you buy a kid a present that comes in a really big box, and instead of playing with the toy, they just play with the box all day, and that's the kind of thing that I love about kids, you know? I still very much have that sense of, you know, never stop playing make-believe, which is why I still keep doing what I'm doing now, you know, and writing weird shows about doppelgangers and men that live inside each other's beards, like just making the things that I've never seen before happen. It's like playing make-believe, but for a job, sometimes. Shane Abzak, thanks very much for joining Radio Notes. Man, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure as always. Shane Adamzak, Artistic Director of Weeping Spoon, host of The Cave, as well as Up Late Live can be found online at weepingspoon.com. 
Thanks very much to Shane Adamzak for being our featured guest today. He mentioned the Foves, Tism and the Gurge. These are staple bands of the Australian Big Day Out circuit across the years. And next time on this very show, we'll be catching up with the first person to take the stage as a lead singer of a band at the first Adelaide Big Day Out. Matt Kale will be our special guest. That's next time. Quick plug before I do go, we've just recorded an interview with Don McLean of the American Pie Song and Album as it celebrates 50 years next year and a conversation with Nathan Foley, best known for High Five. RadioNotesPodcast.com for show notes and links. Web design there by Steve Davis. Theme music by Martin Kennedy and All India Radio. I'm Tammy Weller. John Murch is the producer and host based in Adelaide, South Australia. Mm-hmm.